you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. Just a heads up that we are not clinical experts, and if you need professional help, there will be some links and resources listed in the podcast description, as well as in our newsletter, which you can sign up to receive at las.com slash newsletters. Using art as therapy has taught me that process can be an honest reflection of my thoughts. As I'm expressing my thoughts and feelings, I'm actually seeing and sometimes for the first time, what those thoughts and feelings look like and how they reflect my comfort or discomfort with the truth. Through art, whether it's a character I'm developing or a painting or a podcast, I get to use my process as a way to see what I'm going through from different perspectives. Sometimes I don't like what I see. But regardless, I learn more about myself through relying on the process. In a pretty well-known book on art and process called The War of Art, the author talks about resistance as the main thing that's blocking us from moving through our creativity. So now when I sense resistance, whether it's avoidance or making an excuse or straight up arguing with myself about whether what I'm doing is worth anything, when I sense that self-doubt, I know that I need to trust the process because I'm about to break through to something that's really powerful and meaningful. And look, initially, all this was really hard for me to do and it's still really hard for me to do. Trusting my process, leaning into resistance and believing that I could learn something through exposing my vulnerability in my art. It was much easier for me to hold on to that familiar pain than to do anything with it. I'm not enough. It's not good enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not this enough. I used to get caught up in believing that narrative that I created in my head. And it's a scary feeling. (laughs) Hearing those dark thoughts creep in and break my sense of self. Eventually, it catches up to you and you know you have to let it go and you have to trust. And this is something that you have to do every single time. It's not easy and it's hard work and I'm still doing it. Byron Bauer's work on stage and on screen has really moved me. I was moved by his honesty in Honey Boy, and in watching his stand-up, I felt like I grew up with him. You know what I'm saying? Do you get what I'm saying when I say I felt like I grew up with him? Like maybe we went to grade school together, and all of a sudden we were grown-ups, and now we were having a conversation. Um, through his stand-up, I learned about his paranoid schizophrenic father, which is something that I had never heard anybody talk about. 
And in this conversation, we look at how he has learned to see some of his toughest moments, some of his biggest challenges, and see them as gifts, which has certainly offered me some new perspective, certainly about how I've grown up and and maybe looking at my challenges and the shit that's happened in my life as gifts, which I guess they are. Byron, I just want to start off by telling you that watching your comedy and hearing about your lived experience is such an inspiration. It's been really nice uh, to see you doing your thing. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been a grind. It's been one of those up and down uh, experiences, but I've been able to grow through this art form. What kind of experience do you want your audience to have when you're on stage? I want them to experience life. You know, the whole range, the ups, the downs, you know, of, of life and have a fulfillment. Some people damn near cry. Some people laugh. Some people reflect on their own life. It's like a little acid trip mm-hmm. for like an hour. You know what I mean? Right. If you ever done a hallucinogen within an hour, you could live like a hundred years and experience it's like uh, thousands of years of life in one hour. So I definitely want that version of it. What made you pursue a career in comedy? Oh, just people telling me that I probably could do it and be good at it. Because I was just hanging out, trying to figure things out. A lot of failure went into this, <laughs> you know. Even with acting, it's like people like, man, you're probably good at this thing. And then you and then you do it, and then the next thing comes. And then, you know, it's, it's definitely like uh, unsureness of all of it. Right. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's that's the community and people saying I should do it. And then I I failed at it, but then I, I I wanted to do it. And I just kept failing at it, you know, until I got some some sort of success or being able to book a show or something like that, you know. How would you define your style of comedy? I don't know. I that's just me. I remember when I prepared for that show, I was I was shooting something and I landed in LA to film. And I'm trying to remember all the beats to this joke, this story. And then instinctively, you know, I follow my gut. I call it, you know, that's the universe, God, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just crazy. But uh, it was just like, fuck the jokes. You you live this. Right. Just give them that. And I went in that with faith blindly, not knowing how the audience would take it. But well, I'm on stage. And it comes across slow because I'm... I'm visually seeing everything as I talk about it. So I'm in the room, but I'm not in the room. And every now and again, I check in with the room. Yeah. And I see people's eyes glistening and watering over and stuff. But I'm like deep into this thing. And then I didn't even have an ending for it. And I came, just came out. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, it worked out. That's another thing of like trusting your, your instincts or your gut. As far as style, I don't know if I have a style. If I if I knew the style, I would be rich right now. <laughs> Cause I would exploit myself. You know what I mean? So, Byron, I know you have a ton of work coming out. I'm excited to see Concrete Cowboys. Um, but when I first saw you was in Honey Boy. I honestly think that your performance was one of the most moving performances. And then when I saw you stand up, it like made so much sense to me. I know you worked with your partner, Alma Harrell, on that film. How was that? How was that working with with your partner on something like this? 
Uh, it was interesting because I remember she told me something, and then I said something back, and she was like, "No, no, 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 I'm the director. <laughs> you don't, you don't say nothing back to me or whatever." Doing that, I mean, in that instance, right? right. And I was like, "Oh yeah," because when we met, we were beef. We would get into it, and I'm like, "Yo, I mean, you must be used to talking to people like a certain way." I ain't. I ain't that type of person, you know what I mean? And I had to realize, oh, she's a director, so she used to directing. Right. So I had to like get into that mode of being on set. But she allowed me the freedom to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and we developed that character. That character was different before I booked a role, and then she allowed me to put so much of my life into it mm-hmm. that it, this character could exist anywhere. So once I was there, I was just able to just walk around set as this person, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, rehab, as I called it. I was just there. Right. Do you find that really rewarding to to work creatively with, with your romantic partner in this way? Um, I don't know, man. I think it could be very uh, dangerous, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. but all ego aside or whatever. Yeah, I think it is rewarding to work with anybody. Like that, that you trust, mm-hmm. especially somebody with trust issues. You know, um, I try to work with people I trust. That set was so comforting. You know, I mean, like people were crying on that set. You know, it could have been the dude who make the food, craft services. Mm-hmm. That's how therapeutic that set was. So I was able to see like a leader come in and really like lead a group of people. And make a place comfortable and enough for people to be free and be themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a lot of children and addicts on that set, so it was a, it was a rewarding film for everybody. Is that why you connected to the film so much, to the script so much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read it late. I was working on my own project, a father and son project. And as you know from my material, I, I do a lot of father and son stuff. So that allowed me to uh, once I read once I read it, I was like, oh, I have to help tell this story. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a fascinating story to me. And I think it's a story that needs to be told because of what's going on, you know, in society with guys now. And like, where do some of these behaviors come from? More after the break. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. So Byron, my family has a history of mental illness and I'm still processing that through my work. 
and through therapy and actually through the show. How have you processed your father's mental illness? I mean, I'm still processing it as we speak. I mean, it all goes back to the question you asked, what defines your style? Mm-hmm. I mean, I really don't know because I'm still processing everything. Like, I don't know what reality is, you know, or what's real or what's not. Because when you, you know, the person who told you about certain things, you don't know if it's based on truth. Right. Certain things about society. And then, you know, your paranoia could have been, you know, taught to you by a paranoid schizophrenic. Right. So I have to process what's real and what's not real and what's love, what is love, and like all these things. You know, I used to think these people might not have loved me, but maybe they did. But this is what love really is. So like I said, yeah, it's a process. I'm still learning, and I think I will be doing that forever. You know what I mean? Because it shapes it shapes your relationships or community and all these things I really not or don't know about or might not trust as much. You mentioned you struggle with trust issues. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't <laughs> even I don't even trust to say yes or no, you know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, it's definitely something there, you know what I mean? Abandonment and all of those things, you know. So I mean, I guess I'm in a situation now like a relationship and it's like a regular relationship. It's close to regular that I'm a I'm I'm probably gonna get, you know, because I don't have anything to gauge it off of. That foundation changes everything. But you've mentioned that that you don't go to therapy. No, I don't go to therapy. Why? Why is that? I don't know. Part of me feels like if I go in the room, only one of us can leave the room. Why? Because if I talk tell somebody these things, then it's two people that know these things. And and yeah, the other person can't exist, you know what I mean? <laughs> I hear that. But but you feel more comfortable being on stage and sharing these things? Yeah, I do. I actually do. It's weird. Is it is it just the the intimacy part? Uh, I think so. It could be. I never thought about that. You know, yeah, cuz I think intimacy I guess when I hear that word when it gets that intimacy, I only think of like sexual experiences, you know, so maybe it could be that. I don't know. I don't, I haven't processed it yet. I'm not saying that therapy is out of the question. Right. I do have a therapy button. Like if shit get crazy, then I have to go handle this. You know what I mean? But I've been able to manage so far and, and understand how to do certain things. Do you think people who have gone through fucked up shit are drawn to comedy? Yeah, I, I call us degenerates. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I do think we have something. That's why I am in this realm. But it's a it's an open, honest conversation around it. Even right. though you might not see it on stage, but in the green room, you know everybody's you know going through something or fucked up in some way. Is that the most comfortable place that you feel like talking about your feelings is like with other comics, like versus a therapist? Uh, probably mostly your audience versus other comics, right? Because mm-hmm. everybody's everybody's fucked up in the comedy world. But with an audience, you get to hear. With a therapist, if I say something in a therapist, in a, in a room with a therapist, I might not get a response. Like, how do you know it's fucked up or not? Right? Or if you're in Hollywood... 
and people doing the stuff they do in Hollywood, how do you know if it's bad or not? Nobody says nothing. But if you go to a room of strangers and normal, quote unquote, normal people, and you say, I did this thing, you will gauge whether it's good or how how people view it by their reaction. Because mm-hmm. some people be like, oh, that's cool. It's cool to do that. And some people be like, no, that ain't, what's up with that? You know what I mean? So I definitely lean on the audience or or a, a regular person more than a comedian. Because that's like preaching to the choir. Byron, I just wonder what the next step is. I mean, you could only get so much from your audience. And I mean, first of all, I think you're a fucking genius for getting this far with everything that you've been through and learning and like building an outlet for yourself. I mean, you've done that. Only really, really, really smart and emotionally intelligent and and otherwise intelligent people do that. But what's the next step after that? Because I think that more questions are going to come up. But, you know, I wonder. Yeah, the questions are going to keep coming up and you have to accept that because, you know, if you're building something, once you're done building it, it's boring. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So the questions should come up. If the questions don't come up, you're not growing. You know what I mean? Right. Every time I'm upset and I do something, or you know, it helps me to be in a relationship, and I'm having, a, and I get into this whatever I'm into, and then my lady like you raising your voice, and I'm like, oh shit, am I raising my voice? You know, niggas talk loud when they get mad. You know what I mean? Oh, am I mad? I don't know. You know, I'm just passionate about what the fuck I'm saying. So you know. Uh, you don't necessarily need an audience, but you have to be aware of these mm-hmm. patterns that you have and if they're unhealthy. I think the universe will show you when it's time to change. After the break, how Byron found peace with his father. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. This podcast is focused on communities of color and their relationship to mental health. What do you wish was available for you like when you were growing up? It's tough to say because of how my life is shaping out. All those things helped me get here. Yeah. But if I could give something to people like me, and I have to shout out to like Leonard Anderson, a friend of my mom who gave me the these books you know, when I was younger, maybe 20 years ago, to get into Tony Robbins and all these people, right? So I would give people financial literacy and I would give them the mental health conversation and learn how to change your thought process, especially any child of an addict, to give them the tools to prepare them for what they about to go through, Mm -hmm. you know? Because we take it personally, like, if you're parents spending time on their drug instead of you, That's you take that personally. And it's going to affect you later on, but you don't know that. So, yeah, just to give the youth that. Like, screw Absolutely. racism and the stuff that the government, all that stuff people complain about. 
just giving them those seeds, uh, financial literacy and uh, a better mental health, the tools to prepare how to deal with anything mentally, I think could take them further and anywhere they want to go. I was in London and I had a bad acid trip. And that's when I really, really understood what my dad was going through. Mm-hmm. And I was able to empathize with what he was going through because, I mean, that was seven hours. And he going through that every day. And it allowed me to communicate with him. Because before, we was always getting this bust up. Uh, he accusing me of trying to kill him and all type of stuff. But once I had that trip, I was able to get into his world and go on this ride. Because I went through a bad trip and I had to accept this trip and go on that ride. So, I mean, me and my dad, communication became tight. And we would just, I mean, we would talk for like a half hour on who's trying to kill him. You know what I mean? And, right. And all these, you know, conspiracies and stuff. And he and, he he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yeah, paranoid schizophrenia. Okay. You know, uh, and then after that, I would have to come down from that conversation, which is tough. How did you decompress from that? I mean, it's tough because you realize, like, you know, it's still a, a sad acceptance of things that will never, like, I would never have. You know, uh, when it comes to parent and child relationship. You know, uh, I thought my dad would die and not un- fully uh, understand that, you know, that I forgave him and that um, he was a great father when he wasn't crazy. Right. And I had to accept that, which was tough. And he didn't, like in the last few seconds before he died, I was able, we was able to communicate that with no words, you know? So um, it's still certain things. But on a on a macro level, on a bigger level, it's still certain things I feel that we were robbed of as a people. Cause I got friends from Africa and they they dad died and for the funeral they had on all the African wardrobe mm-hmm. and the tradition of of how they would send somebody to the next life. And I was like, it was a visual of things to me that my culture was robbed of. We would never have that. We could do 23 and me and we could put on the outfits. But the food and the certain knickknacks is just gone forever. It's lost. And, um, you know, in life, that's certain, it's certain things we have to, you know, accept. That's why I embrace all the different cultures or uh, nuances of cultures that I have, like being from the South and being mm-hmm. from Atlanta and, like, being a child of uh, uh, a schizophrenic. I mean, it's a freedom. We have a freedom in that, too. We have a freedom in that, you know, because we don't, a lot of the rules that society give people, we didn't have. So we was able to create through through our flaws, this other side of, of, of life, you know what I mean? Right. I love that. We were able to make the mistake like this, it's okay. I mean, normal people don't do that. Why, just the fuck they do, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, I like, I totally get what you're saying. I, I, I love... I love that you just said that right there, like that, that not getting that back. How, how is it, I mean, how do we have those, these conversations with, with people who might also experience what you've experienced, like letting go of your dad and, and, but not having, having to sort of go through that closure on your own or not having these traditions that like your friend had, how do we reconcile that? I don't know, man. I think that's the problem that's going on in this country. When people try to ask for 
you know, reconciliation for slavery or, you know, what happened to the Native Americans and 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 still that's happening to the, you know, these communities, you know, Latino communities, the, what they call it, equality. And like, it's so complex. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I don't know how we, how we deal with it. I still go through it. I just accept it though. You know, I think it's better if, if America was just like, man, fuck that. That's just how it is here. You think that would be easier? I mean, I had to, you know, than to I like had fight to, for reparations. I don't. I, that's what I had to do. I had to accept like this is what it is, because I've been to other countries and that's what it is. When I went to the DR, and I see the Haitians get treated a certain way, or I'm in Japan, I see how they treat Koreans, or I'll go to Palestine. You know what I mean? In, in the Middle East, Me- Mexico, where you know, to me, it's like they Mexican, but when you get to Mexico, they like we don't fuck with these people. Mm-hmm. We don't fuck with that. We kicked a group of people out mm-hmm. of Mexico. That's how you got the L.A. Latino. You know what I mean? Right, so right. It's like, oh, these things are not... To me, I just accepted, like, oh, this is how people are. So I moved on. Do you think that your work is, like, a step towards that liberation? Like, a step towards that work that needs to be done? I don't know. It, it, I don't know if it is or is it just a bearing or hiding of it emotionally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um because, I mean, the privilege we have is that we come from people with mental illness and like addicts, but it's also the curse because why people are protesting about equal rights, we have other issues that make equal rights seem like it ain't shit. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, part of me like, that's a privilege. That's a privilege to be doing you know, certain protests and stuff out there on the grass and with your fist up. Because the issues, these, these, some of these issues that we fight are even crazier. Yeah, because communities of color need access to mental health resources. I think so. I mean, that's why I'm talking about it. You know, um, I reached a part of comedy where I couldn't go fur- any further. Mm-hmm. And I know they say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, people like comedians they can relate to. And that's another thing I had to give up. Well, I'm not I'm not relatable. I had to accept that. And since I accepted I'm not relatable, I was like, well, I mean, I'm doing all these jokes about Harry Potter and all these things, but mm-hmm. it's a, it was underneath that was some real things that I experienced. So I'm like, well, since I'm not relatable, I'm ditching all the Harry Potter jokes and stuff, and I'm just going to talk about the real situation. And when I did that, I start finding people coming out of the woodwork. It's like, oh, that now I'm now I'm relatable to that group. Byron, what where are you currently in your work? Like, what would be most helpful to hear about mental health for you? Or to like learn about or discover? I don't know. Personally, I still make discoveries. I'm still growing as a person and I'm and I'm more confident now that I will get to a place, you know what I mean? And I won't go too crazy. Right. I think with the world, I say, uh, have fun with it. That's what I tell people on stage now. If you're depressed, have fun with it. Life is full of ups and downs. We enjoy the ups. Why can't we if we if we got money in our pocket and we happy and we going out, we buying drinks, and why not enjoy when we broke? 
like, man, screw it. You know what I mean? I just picked a cigarette up off the ground. I smoked that. I smoked that motherfucker. Damn, I can't believe I did that. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm eating McDonald's and this. I look, walk past a homeless person. He got Whole Foods. I experienced that, that embarrassment. Right. You know what I mean? And like, I learned how to. If I'm depressed, it's a it's a selfish thing. I'm thinking about myself. I go feed the homeless or something, then I'm not thinking about myself no more. So I alleviate some of that depression mm-hmm. by help, by taking it away from me. By helping others. Usually when you're depressed, it's your mm-hmm. surroundings or something happened and you feel helpless, right? But if you go out and help somebody, you become a service. You feel needed again. Where, and that's one thing that helps me by doing this. A part of me is like I'm helping, you know, it's people that came to, to the show to laugh. And they all on date. They trying to get some pussy. They drinking. And I'm finna talk about, just about to tell a suicide joke. Because somebody there got to hear it. So, I mean, y'all could be doing whatever y'all need to do right now. But I'm finna tell, I'm finna talk to that one person. Yeah, I'm so excited to to keep watching you, keep seeing you just do your thing and help inspiring others. Your storytelling is fucking real as hell i connect with it so many of us connect to it oh yeah now yeah now it's definitely relatable because all the think of all the years of me doing dark jokes and not hitting and now it's like oh i realize like i'm making you think about something or reflect on yourself Mm -hmm. and so i'm comfortable with that because it's something that we all should be doing anyway Absolutely. Life's going to force you to grow or or you're going to fall to the wayside. But every living thing on this earth grow, it goes through a cycle. So we got to enjoy it. Even if our life fucked up, this is this is it. <laughs> man, Byron, thank you so much. I, I love your wisdom and everything you have to offer. I can't wait to see more. Thank, thank you, you, man. I don't thank know where, where I'm going from here, everybody. Uh, this could be the height of it. I don't know. Or not, but uh, just stay tuned. It's a journey. That's all I can say. Stay tuned, everybody. Thanks, Byron. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm not okay is a production of LAS Studios. Remember to rate and review our show. I just found out that it helps other people find it. So if you like it, share it with your friends. The more people we can get to have conversations about mental health, the better. If you've got a story you want to share about how you deal with mental health issues, send it my way. Record it on your phone's voice memo app and email it to yano at lastudios.com. And be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get the latest episodes with a note from me recommendations from our listeners and our team and listener stories sign up at las.com slash newsletters jessica pilot is our talent manager and producer our executive producers are leo g and me diane guerrero web designed by andy cheatwood at the digital and marketing teams at southern california public radio thanks to the team at las studios including taylor kaufman Kristen hayford Kristen muller michael constantino Robert Joe, Mildred Langford, and Leo G. And a special thanks to Brian Crawford. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Additional support comes from the Angel Foundation, supporting transformational leaders, and by the California Healthcare Foundation, 
dedicated to improving the mental health care system for all Californians. Studios. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.